Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Chiller. I took a week off last week. I actually I just had so many interviews to go through. I was sort of just rushing from editing one to producing a show to promoting it and needed a little bit of a, a pause in between everything to uh, just catch up a little bit. Um, <laughs> so I do apologize for that. Uh, but because of that, I have a relatively packed show for you this episode. I have quite a few links to go through has been two weeks and there's been lots happening. And then I have an interview um, that I did a little while back now, actually. It sat on my queue for some time uh, with SpectroCloud, uh, with Terry Fu and Tina Nolte of SpectroCloud. And, and SpectroCloud is uh, one of a number of Kubernetes, uh, managed Kubernetes as a service sort of platforms with a few unique aspects that uh, we will dig into in the interview, of course. So look forward to that. But first, let's get started with some links. Sort of flipping the order I normally do this time around. I'm going to start with the non-technology stories and slowly ease into those. The first one was uh, on uh, New Scientist, but was reported in a few places. This is uh, Finland's experiment with universal basic income and uh, how it went, pretty much. It's sort of a strange summary in that uh, it's kind of like the the research, the the test project, whatever you want to call it, basically sort of accomplished what they expected to accomplish, and the reporting on it was fairly muted. I think people were expecting more, whereas uh, maybe what happened was what people expected, and maybe they were slightly disappointed in whatever way. Maybe people wanted it to be more negative or more positive, but it mostly sort of just did what it said on the tin, did what it expected. And some of the uh, outstanding pieces of um, of outcomes from it were ones that they're not even entirely sure about what the reasons were as well. Things like um, people with children or whose first language is not Finnish or Swedish um, ended up with more employment at the end of it or during the process, but they're not quite sure why. One could argue this was due to maybe increased confidence or less uh, pressure to find a job, so they end up uh, kind of doing better at finding jobs in the long run. Uh, but as, I, as they say, they don't actually know. But then a lot of the expected positives are there as well. Uh, less uh, pressure means better mental health, um, more relaxed, uh, better physical health, and things like this. So I think even on this small scale, um, it was relatively successful. They're not actually sure if they're going to do it again. I think one of the problems with universal basic income is is sort of present in the name. But to really work at scale, it has to be universal. And that, even in one country, is near impossible. So imagine it globally in some way, shape or form. Obviously, current uh, current events mean that we're sort of doing some similar things, even though we're not calling it that right now. Um so it's interesting that they announced the uh, results now, although that's just coincidence, <laughs> I think. Um, and what will happen in the future with universal basic income after this kind of period, we're not quite sure. Uh, report backs have been somewhat mixed. It's probably one of the most successful ones. But I guess it's in a country that already had a fairly well-established uh, social security and payments type structure. So, um, yeah, it's one... Uh, with people that are more willing to to embrace something like this and, and go with it and trust their government more. So it's sort of a good testing ground, but maybe 
a, a non-average testing ground for many, many countries in the world. But have a look, uh, link in the show notes, and um, yeah, see what you think. Next, I'm actually going to recommend a podcast. Uh, this was from Freakonomics podcast from a couple of weeks ago. Will COVID-19 spark a cold war or worse with China? <laughs> nice and cheerful uh, title there. There's been a lot of conspiracy theories and things flying around and just political tensions, of course, as we all sort of get very focused on ourselves right now during this uh, pandemic. Uh, and there's been a lot of accusatory statements against China as being the origin of this uh, in various different ways, depending on who you listen to, whether they did it intentionally or unintentionally or, or just didn't care enough or etc etc and then there's lots of other people blaming the who blaming the west for not taking china's warning seriously enough etc etc i don't think the blame game is necessarily useful but this podcast episode was interesting because it hypothesized around these ideas and what could be some of the in my mind and my opinion bigger negative outcomes of this whole pandemic actually in the long run um, what could it mean to the, the world situation in terms of economics, politics, stability, etc. Uh, hopefully just a thought experiment of a podcast episode. But if any of that interests you and you'd like to hear from some people who've been thinking about this and some of their evidence, then have a listen. Find the episode on their podcast and, uh, yeah, have a listen and hopefully you don't get uh, too many sleepless nights over it. Something a little bit more fun now from uh, Gizmodo. James Whitbrook, uh, 13 sci-fi and fantasy board games that are gorgeous to behold, as fun as they are to play. Uh, great selection here. Some I own and uh, play regularly, some of the Cthulhu-related ones. Uh, also Scythe is in there, a couple that you probably definitely know, Mysterium, which I'm not actually a huge fan of, but a lot of people are. Um, but also some games in there I have not heard of, so I look forward to, to taking a look at. Um, quite a couple, uh, actually. Space Park, Fall of Magic, Planetarium... Um, High Frontier, Quacks of Quedingburg. <laughs> These all sound very intriguing. They do look beautiful, but I had never heard of them. So I look forward to maybe seeing if any of those are in any of the current simulators. It's been a nice way to try some games recently without having to buy them outright. Um, but yeah, if you're looking for new sci-fi fantasy games to sink your teeth into, have a look, because I certainly learnt some new ones there myself. Transitioning slowly into technology here, I'm not going to get into too much detail on this post because it starts to really get into territories I know nothing about. But this, again, was reported in a few places, but I'm referencing here the Scientific American, an article from uh, Adrian Becker. Stephen Wolfram, who I've actually interviewed on this show before a couple of years ago, it was a very interesting interview. He just recently put out a theory of everything, which is every physicist's favorite activity to try and do. And it has been criticised, uh, mostly, actually strangely, not, not primarily because of what it contains, but primarily because of how he does it. He's always been a physicist who has existed outside of the traditional physicist circles, and it's almost a bit like other physicists, it's a hard word to say repeatedly, somewhat resent him for that and have a tendency to criticise anything he does, whether it's good or bad, because he doesn't go through the peer review process. He thinks it's flawed. I think others would agree. He tends to maybe turn his scientific papers into more of a PR exercise, which is a double-edged sword. It gets it out into mainstream forums, but of course some people will treat it as a PR exercise. It's probably both. Um, and then people 
are criticizing some of his actual theory, but I'm not going to cover that. I recommend you have a read of the article instead, but I just found it interesting, firstly, because I've interviewed him, but secondly, because of this kind of uh, not being um, taken seriously by the mainstream, whatever that may mean in the world of physicists. But anyway, have a look, and maybe if you are more familiar with that field, um, you might have uh, more opinions, and I'd love to hear them. You can find how to get in touch with the show at chrischinchilla.com. Now, transitioning into the technology space here, this was an article on Wired uh, UK, I think. Yeah, by Chris Stokel-Walker. Uh, how Skype lost out to Zoom, I think uh, primarily on the branding, but also just uh, the, what people turn to to use, whereas Skype a few years ago was what everybody used. What went wrong? A lot of people pinpoint the Microsoft acquisition, not necessarily the acquisition, but then what they tried to do to the application. They turned it into this horrible kind of uh, electron-based mess, uh, and it's been fiddly ever since. Um, people also cite uh, quality issues and things like that. And Microsoft is slowly apparently shuttering Skype into Microsoft Teams. Now, despite a lot of people criticizing Skype, there's a couple of things it does quite well that others do not do, which I'm concerned about. One is the NDI support, which is great for streamers. And nothing else really does it the same way as Skype. And I hope that isn't lost because that'd be a big problem. Uh, it'll force people down using very expensive high-end products if they take that out. Uh, and also the ability to schedule group calls for free. Um, it might seem like a minor thing, and then uh, record them. It's a weird, strange minor thing that I've found with uh, some podcasts I've on. When we used to use um, Hangouts uh, live, um, and that was taken away, and we had to switch to Skype to replace some of this. Um, I think that's me getting my facts right. I feel like I'm making something up there. I don't know. But anyway, we, for some reason, found that Skype was much better at this than some other tools. Um, and yeah, if that goes away as well, that could be a problem. So there's a couple of tiny niche uses there that some people still use Skype for. Also, of course, the fact it integrates very nicely with being able to call actual phones uh, and have a balance for that is one. Uh, there's this whole other area of people who use Skype for kind of getting in touch with elderly relatives in other countries who only have phones. I think people forget that that is still a very valid use case for many. Um, I used to use it to call my grandparents and then I would use it to call my dad. He now has a, an actual Skype account, so we don't really have to worry about that side anymore. But I still use it to call um, overseas phone numbers, like the Australian tax office, things like that, and banks and, and things like that. So actually it still has a, a couple of niche use cases that I'm not 100% sure what will happen to those. So yeah, I still have a little bit of a, not necessarily fly a flag of love for Skype, but a flag of necessity. And I hope it's not completely forgotten about. Next on um, Motherboard by Matthew Galt, um, Apple's T-Security security, Apple's T2 security chip has created a nightmare for MacBook refurbishers. I first came across this story actually in a Twitter thread of a refurbisher complaining about this, and I didn't really understand the problem because... Um, I didn't understand why someone wouldn't wipe their laptop before giving it to a refurbisher, but apparently they don't very often. And the TT chip is kind of designed, I suppose, to stop thieves and unwanted parties doing this very task. But sometimes there are people who genuinely need to wipe machines to sell them on. Uh, and if someone hasn't done it before that point, then it's not possible. And that is a bit of a problem um, with no real solutions short of 
Um, actually, I think even installing alternative operating systems is difficult. I don't really know what Apple will do about this. I think in their minds, it's kind of a feature, not a bug. Um, and Apple sort of doing the thing of looking at what benefits the majority than the minority. But it is a big problem when it comes to wastage and things like that. And somewhat putting the onus on owners to remember to do this before they sell a machine, which really they should. But that, of course, we know is a whole other conversation. But anyway, it's an interesting discussion. I think Apple will have to introduce some way of doing this. And they do have these kind of authorization programs and things, but they don't suit every kind of refurbisher, especially in like not-for-profit space and things like that. Anyway, interesting uh, concern, and I look forward to seeing if there is a resolution to it. Now, um, coming off the back of that, I have two posts sort of around uh, operating systems. One is uh, from Stephen J. Vaughan, friend of the show, not really, but I just mentioned his content a lot on ZDNet. Most popular operating systems of 2020. Things have been changing. Windows has been losing market share and Linux and macOS have been gaining. Some people are trying to draw correlations to the current pandemic. Uh, the only real direct one I could see that maybe people aren't using office machines and are using home machines um, because these numbers have increased in the past few months. Not sure. Um, I would also argue that maybe Microsoft are just losing interest in Windows themselves. Uh, and I don't know. I am not sure, also not sure if these numbers include something like Chrome OS. I think that usually shows up as Linux. So that's uh, another thing I've mentioned before. But yeah, there's a few interesting uh, ideas to look at why this might be the case. And will it be temporary? And then when everyone goes back to the office, the Windows numbers will go up again. That is something that remains to be seen. Uh, I'm not really sure. I, I would also argue that many Windows machines in people's offices are probably thin clients these days. So you would think that people should be able to access them from home too. Although I'm not 100% sure how that could work on a non-Windows machine. I don't know. A little bit out of my knowledge area, but... Um, Interesting to see, and we'll see if this factor continues. Off the back of that, there was a great post from Lor Zava on Dev.2, State of Linux Usability. He does a great uh, deep dive into testing the usability of certain operating systems. Uh, not just Linux, actually, also Windows and Mac OS. He sets them somewhat arbitrary, and sometimes I take issue with some of the tests he set up. Um, and... Uh, anyway, you know, statistics and metrics always have flaws, but still it was very interesting and probably quite a lot of time spent on, on doing this to, to set this up. And it's quite interesting to see. And some of the results may surprise you, although I will argue uh, with some of them <laughs> based on the comments I just said. But still, have a look if you're interested in this sort of thing. Another, um, actually, I've kind of got two posts here. Like one, again, from ZDNet and one from... And one from TechCrunch on Fairphone making a version of Android, which they are calling um, E slash OS. I don't know how you're supposed to say that, which is a Google-free version of Android, um, which makes a lot of sense for the Fairphone platform. And I would love to try it and see how it works. So there are various open source ways around some of the Google APIs, but there may also be cases where you just don't need them at all. Uh, I use less than I used to. Probably Maps is one of the main ones I still use. Email, I don't. Search, not really. Uh, App Store, of course, is one as well. That's probably the big one. 
But a lot of these have quite easy replacements, but sometimes the Google APIs and Android features, the coupling is fairly tight. So you might find that some of the features you valued aren't working anymore. And certain applications won't work because they're expecting the presence of them and, and things like that. But it's quite interesting. I really want to get an interview with Fairphone soon. So I hope to line that up soon and talk about that amongst other things. And that was my links for the week. So next up, an interview from a little while back with SpectroCloud, with Terry Fu and Tina Nolte. Enjoy. On SpectroCloud side, uh, my name is Terry Fu. Uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of SpectroCloud. Uh, so previously, I was uh, at Cisco. Uh, I was uh, at Cisco's cloud business unit, uh, leading the uh, multi-cloud management and the private cloud solutions like OpenStack and the Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I joined Cisco through the acquisition of my previous startup company called Clicker Technologies, uh, which is a, a multi-cloud management startup mm-hmm. uh, where I was a CTO and co-founder. And before that, uh, I also had several senior engineering positions at VMware and the McAfee. Yeah. On my end, I'm Tina Nolte. I'm VP product. Uh, I know Tenry from Cisco, where I would I would take a lot of his cycles when we were looking at targets. I ran the um, Cisco cloud uh, and DevOps corporate development mm-hmm. and um, corporate venture team. Mm-hmm. So previously, I've led product management at Nebula and DriveScale, so those are mm-hmm. two other scale-out and cloud infrastructure startups, and then also spent some time in Pure Storage's CTO office running their cloud-native efforts. Cool. Yeah, I know some people at uh, DevNet. Um, oh, yeah. I also oh, had yeah. a job interview, I think, with Cloud once, but I wasn't in the States, so <laughs> and they realized that that couldn't work for them. So it's like, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yep. Dev has been really interesting at Cisco. If you, yeah. you watch, um, it's it's been sort of the forefront of transforming what it is that Cisco does in the infrastructure side. Ah, cool. So I, I think fascinating. Yeah. I think I met some of the team as well at South by Southwest two years ago. Um, oh, cool. In the yeah, factory yeah. startup call night thing. I think by that point, everyone was f- sort of forgetting that they were working. So it was just- <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. Anyway, <laughs> so... Yeah. What is SpectroCloud and why would I need it? Sure. Yeah, so maybe I'll kick off and uh, Tina can add more color to it, right? So SpectroCloud, we basically give enterprise ability to not compromise between control and ease of use in their Kubernetes infrastructure, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, in our prior life, multi-cloud management right as a single pane of glass is really what you could hope to do between clouds because application workload in general is not that possible uh, but now with the uh, proliferation of uh, containers and the uh, kubernetes technologies right for the fir- very first time the workload infrastructure become truly portable uh, in the multi-cloud world mm. however what we observe is while kubernetes is an awesome technology. It's not really a product, right? And it's not that easy to operate, especially for production. Uh, so at SpectroCloud, we provide a SaaS-based platform that target to help enterprise to maintain control over their Kubernetes infrastructure stack mm-hmm. while still offering the convenience of a managed Kubernetes experience mm-hmm. in, in cloud environment, whether it's public or private or even bare metal. Yeah, I mean, pulling... Oh, go ahead. No, no, please continue. I think the question I had can easily follow up. So, 
Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, if we, we pull back a little bit, sort of the core observation was that despite all that excitement around Kubernetes and mm-hmm. everyone's talking about it, right? And we see the CNCF surveys talking about people mm-hmm. adopting, folks are really between a rock and a hard place around what they need and mm-hmm. what the operating models are that are available to them. Mm-hmm. And so today, what we talk about is an infrastructure control continuum that that really forces enterprises into trade-offs between control and ease of use, like Tenry was saying. Um, on one extreme, you've got these managed Kubernetes offers in the public clouds that offer, you know, what you could think of as nirvana, right, around ease of use, but really at the expense of control over all kinds of things, right? Where you're operating, when do you pick up updates to your technology stack, what are the pieces of your technology stack, right? And then on the other opposite end of the spectrum, you've got full control, right? Mm. Where you you've built every bit of your infrastructure literally from the ground up to the Kubernetes, you know, infrastructure stack that you're using from, you know, OS to load balancer, et cetera. That's super flexible, full control, which is awesome, but it doesn't scale, right? And so um, what we looked at is like, hey, how do we help an enterprise which could exist anywhere on this control continuum, right? Or maybe even in multiple spots of this control continuum at the same time. How do we give them a solution that lets them not have to trade these things off, right? Control on ease of use. So my main question was, I'm guessing that Spectro Cloud is relatively new because there's <laughs> not a tremendous amount of information on the website yet, mostly an overview. So yeah. I kind of wanted to understand um, where you fit into the, the current landscape of managed Kubernetes, hybrid cloud, these sorts of services that exist um, already. Where do you fit into those gaps or what do you add on to those services existing already? Yeah, so we normally when we talk to people about the ecosystem, we kind of think of the ecosystem as being in three broad buckets. Um, And this is all related to this infrastructure control continuum, right? So the first is that super... um, you know, super high level of control, do-it-yourself options. So there are definitely people out there that do Kubernetes management themselves, right? Um, It's a pretty resource-intensive, time-consuming, a lot of expertise-required approach. Um, There are really only a couple shops out there that we think have the kinds of circumstances where a true do-it-yourself strategy at scale kind of makes sense, but they certainly exist out there. Mm -hmm. Um, Another category is around packaged Kubernetes distros, Right. So um, these are the curated, you know, pre-bundled stacks that are fantastic if the solution that's been put together really happens to have the specific combinations of technologies and versions that you're looking for. But again, if you're looking for something, you know, with more flexibility, you're gonna have to you have to look somewhere else. Um, the third category is the managed Kubernetes services from the public cloud providers. So really easy to maintain, like we were discussing. But if you're an enterprise that's at, say, the cutting edge, right? So your developers are really leaning in and they want to they want to be able to take advantage of newest features within the ecosystem. Or if you really want to control the versioning of the components that you have within your stack because you want to minimize risk to the applications you've deployed, or you'd have needs across multiple clouds, then again, you're you're having you're forced to look for another solution. Right. Um, so we try to do, and the way we think of ourselves is we try to bring that managed service experience from the, you know, the managed Kubernetes, you know, offers 
to enterprises while allowing them to really get the kind of control that you can get through do-it-yourself and with supportability like you would get from the package distros. And it, Is that helpful? Yeah, I think so. And it kind of looks like you um, you allow, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the best word to call to, to use for this, but like um, kind of bundles of, of uh, options. So I can see you have like a, uh, the dev setup that has particular things, you have production right. setup that has particular things. I mean, that's pretty normal, but then you have very special use cases, like the one you have on your site is a uh, GPU. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah so the ability to kind of roll out different sorts of services to very different requirements on clusters. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we provide uh, a few predefined bundles, or if uh, if we will, right, uh, to uh, to cover some of the common use case, but we also provide the flexibility to let user be able to define their own Kubernetes infrastructure stack from base OS to Kubernetes to storage network and additional add-ons like load balancer and logging monitoring, so on and so forth. Yeah, and by by letting people go ahead and define those stacks, or you know, if they happen to work for them, just the ones that we've already provided, um, what we're able to do in the background with our system is we're able to employ the same model that Kubernetes itself has around declarative desired state maintenance um, and, and be able to, to extend that to your entire Kubernetes infrastructure stack, right? Mm-hmm. So make sure that you've got kind of single sources of truth uh, of ground truth around what your infrastructure underlying your clusters needs to look like. Um, and you can trust that the system in the background is making sure that you're staying true to that, that ground truth mm. um, post deployment. And when, when you say you kind of let, uh, so, so quoting one of the head, headings on the yeah. site, uh, clusters, how and where you want them. I mean, yep. is that, completely true or is it how and where you want them that you support right now (laughs) (laughs) well the where you want them is on public and private cloud right so we follow enterprises in terms of what it is they need Um, right now i mean what do you support yeah today right at this instant we support um we support aws Mm -hmm. And we support VMware deployments and we're pretty far along, not too far off and be able to release our, our Azure and, um, and GCP support. Okay. And then in terms of the, the, the things that can be deployed to those locations, what are you currently offering in terms of, uh, operating systems? Um, yeah. I don't know the, the the components, the operating system, the storage, the the you've got things like GPUs, etc. Like, what are those sorts of components that you also offer right now? Yeah, so we have a very rich set of uh, packs that uh, that we want to provide, right? So, for example, operating system, we support uh, Ubuntu, CentOS, right? And the user can also plug in their own um, private OS if they want to, right? So, for example, if user want to use their own IGO or secure hardened base OS, uh, they can they can do that as well, right? And then for other components uh, like uh, low balancer and uh, and the storage network, right? So we not only support the cloud native offering, uh, but also there's some generic offering. Uh, for example, for storage, we support uh, Rook, uh, we support Ceph, right? Uh, and and we can also uh, allow some commercial solutions uh, like Portworx, right, that the user can bring your own license. 
And do you allow people to uh, move uh, Kubernetes um, objects between um, cluster profiles as well? Uh, like the kind of workflow type thing in a sort of continuous integration, deployment, development, I always forget the Ds sometimes, um, you know, the ability to kind of, uh, okay, this was on my, my dev cluster, uh, now I'd like to move this to the production cluster, that sort of thing, or is it more about the management and then the, the, the kind of the actual integration and deployment is, is handled somewhere else? That's normally handled by uh, a system above us, right? Okay. For example, you can integrate with a CICD yep. platform harness right to drive the, the kind of uh, your deployment from dev to product uh, dev to test to staging to product kind of uh, workflow right fair enough um, one of the other things i see on the screenshots is uh user management and roles um mm-hmm. i guess the first question would be what can people do with those what can they define and the second question would be is that something you're adding on or are you kind of abstracting and leveraging some functionality built into to Kubernetes itself. Sorry, you asking for the users? Yeah, you have the ability to define users and roles, and I just wondered. Users, uh, okay. I can see it in a screenshot. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, so so we have out of box uh, RBAC functionalities. Right? Okay. Uh, right. So uh, the users uh, users can be. Uh, we also have a single sign-on support. Or at least currently we're working on the single sign-on support, right? So, so those uh, can be external users as well, right? And then there's a set of uh, predefined uh, roles. Uh, each role is a collective permissions, uh, but user can also create your custom roles, right? Uh, so that uh, uh, so that you can, uh, if you want, customize uh, a certain role with certain permissions, and then the role can be. Uh, assigned to user or user groups, which we call teams, right? So this is a fairly typical RBAC model, right, compared to any other system. Yep. So uh, I'm guessing that you are reasonably new. Is that is that true? Or have I just judged wrongly there? So um, our, our company launched last week. All right. So, <laughs> interesting historic times. <laughs> Well, you know, people are needing inf- internet infrastructure right now. So yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, so yeah, uh, reasonably new to 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 your point. Um, we uh, we came together as a company uh, mid last year. So we've also been reasonably new, uh, just in terms of how long all the heads have been together. But um, I think Tenry mentioned that. Uh, he came from Clicker previously. We have a lot of people within the company that also had a turn through Clicker. So it's a team that was pretty easy to get gelling and moving very fast. Everyone knew each other. Okay. And um, what motivated, are you the founders or was someone else the founders or? <laughs> uh, I'm the founder. Uh, so, so. Clicker, uh, so Spectral Cloud was uh, founded by three former Clicker tech execs, right? Okay. Yeah, so so myself, uh, Sam Malik, and uh, Gautam Josh, yeah. uh, and uh, Tina joined us in very early stage as well. So what what made you want to start? Like what what kind of problems did you keep having that you wanted to solve by starting the company? Yeah, this actually started uh, when we were at Cisco. We are trying to move our own um, products, 
right, to containerize and then deploy into Kubernetes, right? And then we found operating Kubernetes, it's not that easy, right? Uh, and, and to be honest, for most of enterprise, I think they really should not even spend time and resource on deal with the Kubernetes infrastructure because this is really not their value add and uh, will not impact their bottom line and top line, right? Rather, if we can make the infrastructure, take care of the infrastructure and uh, then allow enterprise to put more resource uh, to focus on their own value add business application, mm. uh, that really, you know, I think, can bring a lot of value. I think Tenra is mentioning a little bit earlier, right? I mean, Kubernetes is, it's technology and there's a gap between technology and product. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially with the, the time at Cisco, you get to speak to a lot of large enterprises, right? Where you have relatively sophisticated teams that are looking and back to trade-offs, right? They're, they're being forced to make trade-offs in terms of what it is that their infrastructure is going to look like if they wanted a supportable solution um, for their, you know, their cloud native efforts. And that just that felt like a good opportunity area. Yeah. And where did your Kubernetes journeys begin in the first place? What was your, I, I don't know if people have a, a kind of like a magic moment with technologies like this, but yeah, <laughs> what was the moment that made you kind of, this is, this is, this is really useful and start trying to figure it out. Jenner, <laughs> you go first. I got my own. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so we have been using Kubernetes, I think, since uh, 1.0.3. Uh, so we kind of uh, witnessed uh, Kubernetes uh, uh, growth over time, right? And uh, become more and more stable and uh, more, yeah, more mature. Hmm. Really, I think what we like Kubernetes, right, is uh, it's not just as a, a kind of a new kind of infrastructure to manage containers, hmm. but it also help users to take care of the application workload management, mm-hmm. right? That's really the beauty of a Kubernetes. Uh, this, uh, once you deploy your applications, your container-based application into Kubernetes, and if in some case your application went down, right, and Kubernetes is consistently monitoring it, it will automatically relaunch it, right? And if you say some policy, it can automatically scale it, right? So it takes care of a lot of uh, applications, day two or lifecycle management. Uh, so we want to bring this kind of uh, experience to the Kubernetes itself, mm. right? So when you deal with Kubernetes infrastructure, right? If the Kubernetes infrastructure is modified or there's an update available, right? We want that also be treated as a disaster state based management so that our system can automatically take care of that uh, for for user, right? Of course, it's still... Or be, can be controlled through policy, so so that uh, right user, if they want to control when and how it happened, they can still set policy. Chris, I think on on my side, it was the dawning happened for me when I was still at Nebula. So I don't know if you've heard of or remember Nebula. It was an early OpenStack private cloud company with a lot of the OpenStack project uh, technical leads. Mm. Um, and towards the end of the life of that company, I remember sitting uh, sitting in a board meeting and we were talking about you know things that had evolved within the you know within the world. And this was again like towards the end of Nebula's life, and uh, and looking around and it finally it it clicked in my head that 
we'd been trying to drag all these enterprises and enterprise dev teams to OpenStack, which was really an infrastructure only solution, mm. right? So, um, you know, how do I do, you know, cloud 1.0, if you will, right? Um, when developers had already moved on to something that was slightly above the infrastructure stack, right? Mm. They're, they're looking for something where they had operational paths capabilities that they were able to access. And Kubernetes just made OpenStack not, you know, again, not really part of the conversation anymore, right? Which is an uncomfortable place to be if you're an OpenStack startup without a lot of uh, a lot of runway left for a pivot, right? So, um, so that was that was the moment for me. It was towards the end of that that company's life. Like, wow, this this is really what people are looking for. Mm-hmm. Something that helps the developer and drives you know, drives their, their ability to get things done faster rather than just a, a, you know, a simple infrastructure. It's a little bit cheaper than Mm. VMware solution. My next question was going to be, what were projects you working on used before? I'm guessing OpenStack for you. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Is that the same for you as well? Uh, for me, it uh, was a multi-cloud management, right? So okay. that did uh, basic cloud abstraction and uh, manage application workload across multiple clouds. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's on the roadmap for the next six, six months? I'm guessing if you're a week old, quite a lot. <laughs> well, we already discussed uh, cloud support. So additional public cloud uh, yeah. support is something that we're actively working on pretty close in those. So not really risky to talk about. Um, I think generally, though, I'm going to will jump in with a little bit more here. But, you know, generally we look forward and it's around, you know, how do we help enterprise customers make the infrastructure, you know, continue to recede in terms of, you know, where the the amount of mindshare that they've mm-hmm. got um, to, to spend on it, right? Um, we want to make it really easy for people to to take advantage of all the goodies that are out there, both in the public cloud and the private cloud, um, without having it be a, you know, a, a big source of overhead. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, and I guess, um, the, the, cause <laughs> I don't have access to a, a massive amount of information. So maybe I've missed some things that I could say. So especially for you, um, what are some of the things that we haven't covered that you want to make sure are covered? And maybe we can go off at on one of those if there is something in particular. Yeah, I think our, our the main point that we've been trying to make when we're talking to folks is around, uh, you know, removing that trade-off between control and ease of use. Um, you know, Tenray talked a little bit about what the solution looks like. We have this cluster profile concept that we think is pretty unique where we're able to, to again, kind of help people extend this idea of, you know, how Kubernetes manages, um, manages itself and its clusters to the entire infrastructure stack itself. Right. So, so that's really, that's really where we concentrate our, our discussions around, right. Do you, do you have a need for control? Um, you know, while not wanting to spend a lot of overhead on the operational side. And if so, like, let's talk about, you know, how we, how we think we've got an interesting solution to, to address that. Is, is that actually one aspect you, you do? Maybe, maybe it was kind of alluded to and I didn't really pick up on it, but that aspect of helping people um, kind of streamline the cost of their uh, hybrid clouds, is that one thing you do do implicitly or is it something more that you kind of do because people have the control? 
Yeah, so it kind of fits into two buckets there. And again, Tenry, I'll probably add a little bit here too. Um, one conversation that we have had with people around the cluster profile concept itself. So remember, cluster profiles are these declarative models of what your infrastructure stack, including Kubernetes, looks like. Um, if you've got a system that manages lifecycle of that entire stack for you in the background, then you've got the ability to start saying, hey, you know what? different groups or even within the same group, different use cases might have a different set of you know, requirements to be willing to live with or want to live with in terms of the infrastructure itself. And so, for example, you might have an internally focused development use case, right? Like maybe you're testing new features, right? Um, you know, for some of your tech stack, this isn't something that goes into production. Maybe you want your base operating system to actually be a community so supported one, right? Rather than like a security hardened rel, you know, that, that you use for production. So, so you're able to go ahead and make some of these decisions around cost control that might not have been feasible before because of operational constraints, right? You, you didn't want to have a bunch of snowflake deployments within your, you know, within your environment. And here, like you can control it more because you've got cluster profiles that are ground sources of truth and they're all centrally managed, right? So that's one kind of obvious way that people can, can tackle cost savings today. Um, the other thing that we think about and that we talk to quite a few people about in terms of where they like to go is, you know, if you've got, again, kind of centrally managed system that, you know, can, can maintain consistency for your deployments in different places and has a pretty, you know, intimate relationship, if you will, right, with your, your deployments into these various cloud properties, you start being able to make very interesting um, you have the possibility of making very interesting decisions around where workloads should land based on what the constraints are that are attached to those workloads, right? So an intelligent infrastructure in the background can, can really help you make easier, better decisions there. And this isn't the old world of cloud 1.0, right? We're not talking just, hey, you know, cycles are a little bit cheaper on this cloud versus that cloud. These are more intelligent discussions, right, about hey, you know, my, my workload has a need for specific sets of services, right? Or particular, you know, locality requirements with respect to my end users. Um, infrastructure should be able to, to stretch with that, right? And, and again, help, help the human make really good decisions. Mm -hmm. Nice. Do you have anything to add to that, Tenry? That was a kind of a nice ending statement, but... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I think yeah. On top of that, is really right through our platform, right? We can help the Kubernetes operators to to improve their operation efficiencies, right? Uh, so that uh, they have less worry about how the Kubernetes lifecycle management is done. Uh, but in the meantime, they also have the flexibility, right, uh, to control the end-to-end -end stack, right, to have. Uh, everything that's really suitable for their needs, right? Uh, instead of uh, looking for some solution that is a one size fit for all, right? Have to dictate the my way or highway mm -hmm. kind of approach. Uh, so through this, right? So uh, operation efficiency that uh, implicitly it can help them to reduce the cost, right? Help them to uh, bring their solutions uh, faster to market, right? So all these, uh, I think, will bring more business value to enterprise. And actually the final question just relevant to kind of the platform itself, myself and kind of my audience, are the sorts of people who like to maybe play with things a bit. Do you have any way at the moment that people can self-serve 
test what you have or is it mostly at the kind of demo sales stage right now because I know I know your your audience is enterprises, but sometimes the developers at enterprises kind of tell their bosses what they want to use, <laughs> but they want to play with it first. Is that at all possible or not right now? Yeah, so that's our ultimate goal. Uh, right now, we are in private beta, right? Uh, so we engage uh, with uh, about sixteen beta customers. Uh, uh, since we are still in beta, so right now probably still a bit uh, hand holding with the customers, right? We deeply engage with every one of them, but ultimately we want to open up the platform, allow user to self service and directly play with that. But for people who are interested in checking it out, like it is a SaaS product. So it means that, you know, while, um, while we still are in private beta, it's really um, close to trivial uh, in order to go ahead and get started if, if folks were to reach out. Yeah, yeah. And that was my interview with the folks at SpectroCloud. Hope you enjoyed that. Okay. Updates. I've been a little uh, busy with work this week, so I don't have too much more to update you on that I didn't have last time. I have a few new posts uh, online. My interview and profile of Grafana is now up on Design. Uh, I have a few posts with a new client called uh, Humanitech, mostly around continuous integration, development, deployment, Kubernetes, those sorts of things working on a few new documentation projects. My office hours are still open. Check my pinned tweet if you want to do that. I've been doing some work with Open Collective um, on their documentation and their ethics, two separate working groups. Working groups. Um, my solo game stream went up a week or two ago. I think the last episode made uh, this one still. I need to do the second one and a couple of other projects I need to get going too. Um yeah, I think everything is still just in progress. Keep an eye on christianchiller.com. I did a little bit of organizing of some of the content there to make space for some of this new stuff when I do start promoting it. But yeah, uh, Board Game Jerk, first podcast episode. I've done the rough edits, nearly finished there. The storytelling podcast I've been working on, also very nearly there. So everything is nearly there. <laughs> Doing a weekly show, it feels like I give you the same update every week. But really, every time, there is a tiny update. But again, they're slowly. So, yeah, you won't see me anywhere anytime soon. I'll be at some online events. You can still keep checking my website there for some of those. And, uh, yeah, keep an eye on christianchiller.com. Please rate, review, share the show wherever you heard it. Very appreciated. You can also find ways to support me on my website um, through promotion, through buying some merchandise, things like that. Always appreciated. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and thank you very much for listening. 